Welcome, and thank you for listening today. This Caregiver Life podcast focuses on caregivers from all walks of life. Throughout the episode, we will hear from caregivers on the front line, those who do the day-to-day, sometimes hour-to-hour caregiving. We will also hear from care recipients, professionals in the field of caregiving, and other various topics of interest to those living this caregiver life. Well, hello, and we have a, another podcast today um, around TBIs. Since we know this is the month, March is the month of TBI awareness, and we're we're rolling with that. Though I do think any time of the year, our TBI traumatic brain injury podcasts are good for anybody to listen to who's concerned about TBIs or living with a TBI or caring for somebody with a TBI. And today I have Dr. Rosie Norman. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Communication Sciences and Disorders at the School of Health Professionals at the University of Texas Health Center in San Antonio. And Dr. Rosie is our guest. Hello. Hello. And how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing good. And so we know that this is um, March 17th, as a matter of fact, 2020. And this is, we are thick in the coronavirus concerns. Mm-hmm. So someday we'll listen back to this and we'll know, we'll know the bigger story of what happened with the coronavirus. But right now we really don't know that. And for myself as a caregiver, I've had to do some extra planning and you're a mom of Two boys. Yeah. And I'm a, a professor who teaches um, many uh, students, graduate students in a academic medical center. So they've been on my mind as well, as well as all of my family um, all over the country. So yeah, it's a really unpredictable time. And um, as I said earlier, uh, when we we're talking before we started recording, it's an unscripted time. At least in my generation, we haven't gone through anything uh, like this. Um, so, you know, we're definitely um, facing some uncertainty, but hopefully reaching out to each other and connecting through things like podcasts uh, can help us weather some of uh, this anxiety. Yes, I agree so much. So are your students um, no longer in school right now? Is Correct. So as of Friday, we have moved all of our instruction to online formats. And so my colleagues and myself are uh, tasked with turning traditional lecture style formats to online formats using Zoom and Canvas conferencing and all these new sort of software tools that we haven't really used traditionally. Um, I train graduate students in my profession in speech language pathology, and that's a very hands-on uh, direct contact with patients sort of profession. So um, I think, you know, it's going to be a, definitely a test of creativity to see how we can transform um, some of these um, materials and some of the things that we teach our students to something that we can deliver in an online setting. But um, that's the least that we can do to stop the spread and just keep everybody safe. So um, it's not ideal, but, you know, we're, we're grateful to be employed to have students to educate and um, so uh, you know that it's a small it's a small challenge that I think will be will be fine in the end of it 
Absolutely. I was an online teacher for six years. Oh, wow. You'll have to give me some tips and tricks before we take We never used Zoom, though I think, I think they're using Zoom now. I no longer, I'm no longer teaching, but um, I, I do believe that the school is in North Carolina virtual public school. And we had students, wow. I had students from all over the state. I taught AP classes, but they certainly have many, many courses available, not just AP or honors courses. Wow. They were high school students, but um, we used Canvas. And it's amazing, really, what you can teach online. And it's amazing that some students end up really loving it. Some students yeah. are not so much, but yeah. they did, you can do um, lectures that you record and upload them into Canvas. So there's, there's a lot of places you can go with it. I think in some ways as a teacher, you might find it interesting as to how that is going to stretch you to oh, not sure. just deliver the information, but to teach it so students can learn it. Oh yeah, and for me, so much of that comes from that in-person interaction with the graduate students and looking at their expressions and um, just just the discussions. It's, it, I always tell them, because I teach one day a week and I always tell them it's like my favorite part of the week. I get to come into class and teach them about traumatic brain injury and the work that we do with speech, speech language pathologists. And it's like talking about your favorite subject. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and so I'll have to think about how to emulate that sort of dynamic on an online platform. Um, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Maybe I'll learn to love it and um, it'll just be another, you know, tool in my back pocket for my teaching. Yeah, maybe it will be. Well, that's a great segue. Can you share with us a little bit about your work? So I'm a, um, I'm a speech language pathologist. This is a, this was a career change for me. Um, I studied theater and performance in college and uh, really loved um, just the written word and um, the arts. I was uh, like a typical third child, very creative, very uh, sensitive, um, like to do sort of my own thing and rebel. Um, and so I, uh, I, I studied theater and then uh, straight out of college after I got my Bachelor of Fine Arts, I got a job working in production on a Broadway play in New York. And so I moved up to New York and I worked in the live theater for about three years. And um, it's a very difficult life in terms of the schedule. You only get Mondays off. Days are very long, um, even with an equity card, which is when you become part of the union. It's still very challenging to make a decent salary and you're looking for a job every three months or so. And so after about three years, um, I was ready for a career change. And it was right around the time the 9-11 happened uh, in New York City. And so my husband and I, we had met in college and got married right after college, decided um, to move back to Florida, which is where I grew up. Um, and, and so I made a career change and um, started taking classes. Um, they're called leveling classes in speech language pathology. And those classes enabled me to um, uh, seek uh, admission to a graduate program. Um, and so I did that and I was successful. I got into several programs and I got into UT Austin, University of Texas at Austin. That was the highest ranked school that I was accepted to. So we packed up our stuff and 
including our four-month-old baby. <laughs> and we moved out to Austin, and that's where I got my clinical training, my master's training as a speech-language pathologist. And from the very beginning, the first client that I saw was a patient who had a traumatic brain injury, a young gentleman who had gotten his injury from a motor vehicle accident. And I did not look back after that point. It was my chosen um, sort of a disorder category to treat from that moment on. I just loved working with him and with every other traumatic brain injury patient that I encountered in my clinical training. And so after I was done with my uh, master's uh, program, I moved to San Antonio, which is where I live now. And I worked at the Poly Trauma Center at the VA for five years. And in that work, um, I became really specialized. I did everything within my scope. And if, you're, if people are not familiar with what a speech language pathologist does, we do more than just treat speech, speech and language disorders. We treat uh, cognition, we treat swallowing disorders, uh, we treat any aspect of um, communication. And so that includes things like executive function training, um, any training that you might need for um, being able to perform um, in college and on, on the job. And um, aside from speech and language, we do a lot more than what our title gives us. So, um, so I was there for five years and I became really specialized in treating cognitive uh, disorders uh, that were as a result of mild traumatic brain injury, um, usually as a result of blast injuries in veterans. I had a specialty clinic that was always jam-packed with a lot of young men and women who were having problems with their memory, their attention, their ability to study and work and use language, higher level language efficiently after their brain injuries. Many of them had had multiple injuries mm -hmm. and so it had sort of had had a compounding effect. A lot of them also suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder sleep problems and had some relationship um, issues as well as a result of all of these chronic conditions um, that all of a sudden their families had to also um, participate in and, and had, had to uh, deal with as well. So um, I loved my work there. Um, but after about five years, I was ready to push myself further intellectually. Um, and I'd dabbled a little bit in research with um, Dr. Mary Jo Pugh, who is um, one of my research mentors, who's also one of Roxana Delgado, who you've worked with in the past as well, one of her research mentors as well. I'd done a couple of um, studies with her, had gotten a publication out, and um, I sat down with her and I was like, I want to do more research. I want to do research full time. And she sort of had a come to Jesus talk with me and said, you can't really do that much with just a master's degree. You really need to get the PhD if you want to get federal funding and be a serious researcher. And so at the age of 37 with two small kids and a house and, you know, a well-established um, sort of community, I put together applications for a PhD program, got into the top program for the work that I do, and moved my whole family up to Madison, Wisconsin, where I worked with Dr. Lynn Turkstra, who is a pioneer in traumatic brain injury research, research in my field and in the field in general, 
And so I was her protege. I'm still her protege and worked in her lab. And um, in 2017, I got my PhD and soon after um, saw that UT Health San Antonio was recruiting for a new program here. And so I got recruited um, and I moved back all my clinical work, but I'm back as a researcher and um, I'm really happy about that. And so I do, for the moment I'm on, um, I was able to get some federal funding last summer. So I teach one class um, a year, but the bulk of my work is in um, doing research, um, collecting data on research that's going to improve the lives of people with mild traumatic brain injury. I have um, a lab here at UT Health with about five research assistants and soon to be a part-time PhD student. And so the, the goal of my work is to improve the lives of people with mild TBI. And for language and specifically, which is what I study, it's developing a standardized test to be able to diagnose accurately these disorders. And so that's, that's where I've been uh, since 2017. I'm really happy with the work uh, that we're doing here. It's a wonderful program with a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of support. And I, love, I just love being back in Texas as well. Wow, that's an incredible amount of work that you've done. You've accomplished so much over the years. It's really, it's congratulations. It's, it's a lot that you've done and your contributions are huge. I should um, share, well, I didn't share earlier uh, before we started our podcast, but my husband in 1993 had encephalitis. Oh, wow. Yes, and there wasn't this much known back then. And he has executive functioning impairment. Yeah. Um, and as you, you can see, of course, our listeners can't see, but behind me is one of his paintings back here. Oh, that's beautiful. I was admiring that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there's, there's one over here, too. I have something. Oh, those are gorgeous. I love the abstract landscape. Well, we had no idea, really, that he could paint um, that came after. Mm -hmm. And as I just recently shared this on my Facebook page because people will always I share his paintings on there. I really don't sell them. Um, I sell occasionally, I sell them, um, but he, he learned to paint in the 1990s after he got sick to do something. He couldn't go back to work. He, he was a, an excess and surplus lines insurance broker and he, wow. his executive um, functioning impairment was such that he couldn't put that all together to go to work. It's never gotten any better since then. I don't, I, at the time there was no such thing as a therapy and even if there was we had no insurance when he comes after yeah, he got sick there was a, some rough years and the so the painting just gave him well, it gave him a lot i mean it gave him something to focus on it gave him something to do it kind of redefined who he was for himself you almost can't be wrong when you're painting right so you can feel more success there that's right he struggled a lot with things like um, ordering things, yeah. like putting order on. He was learning privately with somebody and putting order on his palette with his colors in the same place as hers. And he never could get them right. Like yeah. just every time he met her, it was like a brand new, it was like Groundhog Day. So same day as the day before, he wasn't getting it right. And she was very frustrated with him. And said, Mary, I really don't think I can do this. And I said, wait, don't quit on him. I started crying. I said, don't quit. He needs this. 
And I, I said, what do you need him to know? And she, she told me. And, you know, as you well know, the more you repeat yeah. what you have to do, when you can show it, when you can say it, when you can feel it, you can touch this seven times. Well, maybe for somebody with a brain injury, they need it 14 times or 28 times. But eventually he was able to get it. We found strategies. I don't really remember what they were, um, but it was probably something like, like writing it down for him because he's a good learner in that way. Um, but it's, you know, it's a lot of work that has gone on since then in the field. That's just so wonderful. There was just such frustrating times. And it's so great to hear that it doesn't have to be that way for people anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you've touched on um, a couple of things that are really pertinent to, to my profession. So that was in 1993. And, you know, our accrediting body it's called the american speech hearing association we didn't have a really good definition of what a cognitive disorder was cognitive communication disorder was until like the mid 90s so it makes sense that you guys had problems with access because it was it's such a new field it's such a new um sort of problem to tackle and you know i feel like now we focus so much on physical impairments. We still do. We have a bias toward mm-hmm. broken bones and towards physical therapy in the rehab setting after someone has a brain injury. But I can only imagine back in the early 90s how much more that was prevalent. You know, the whole idea of this invisible injury and having problems with executive functioning that was still sort of emerging. And so, um, yeah, it is. It, I think we've come a long way. I think we still have a really long way to go. Um, you know, one of the things that I really stress when I'm teaching or in the, the research that I do is that we have to focus on functional tasks. Um, for a lot of people, therapy means going into a quiet room with a therapist sitting across the table and doing drill exercises from a workbook. And unfortunately, that there's no evidence that therapy that is delivered in that manner is helpful to people at all. And so one of the things that we really stress, I think, um, for myself and my colleagues who work in this space is uh, teaching our students to do therapy in functional context. So if someone's having executive function problems, you know, maybe you do a little bit of work at the table, have them plan out an activity, go grocery shopping for the week, um, but then you actually take them to the store and they actually perform the activities and, and not sort of have these decontextualized activities that maybe the person might feel like they're getting better or like Mm -hmm. they're doing something, but that ultimately have no bearing on how they're going to perform in the real world. We really try to follow the ICF model where people are really at the center of the intervention. And we try to make an impact on the parts of their life that they want to improve. Um, so, um, yeah, that's definitely something that speaks to me as a therapist and just uh, providing interventions that are functional and not just look at the impairment, not just look at everything that's wrong, everything that needs work, you know, every single memory problem that needs to be repaired, but see where that person is and see if maybe in the environment or in the people in the environment, 
you can provide some supports. Um, we call them environmental supports or contextual cues. So maybe if your husband or your friend has a hard time shopping in the grocery store um, because of executive function problems, um, you can do a little bit of pre-planning, but maybe you also go to the grocery store at 8 a.m. and not at 5 p.m. when it's really crowded and busy and they don't have to navigate not only their executive function problems, but their attention problems. And maybe they have emotional regulation issues too that might get exacerbated because it's crowded and people are stressed after work. And so all of that really speaks to, I think, our ideal way of delivering therapy that's it's meaningful to people, it's functional, and that strategies for the most part are strategies that patients or clients have selected themselves. Um, one thing I see a lot with therapists that what therapists sometimes do, I think with every good intention is they might give somebody some type of device to use. Maybe it's a smartphone with lots of buttons on it and lots of apps. But if that person, if that client doesn't want to use that or is having a hard time learning because new learning is hard after a TBI, not being flexible enough to use something else because, you know, especially now that we live in this tech world, we really have to navigate whether how much is enough. So how much technology is, is adequate for the specific client and throwing a bunch of gadgets at people is not necessarily the most functional and, and um, positive thing always. We really have to take people on a client by client, patient by patient basis and look at their needs and their context and what their demands are in the day-to-day -day, uh, routine of their lives. That's such a good point. Now hold on to that. We're gonna take a break. We have TBI okay. Warrior Foundation as our sponsor and we're gonna hear from them and we'll be back in 30 seconds. Today's episode of This Caregiver Life is brought to you by TBI Warrior Foundation, a nonprofit organization with a mission to improve the quality of life for veterans, civilians, and children living with brain injury, as well as their caregivers, through community integration, education, and advancement programs. March is National Brain Injury Awareness Month. Every year, 2.5 million people in the United States sustain traumatic brain injuries. TBI Warrior Foundation is grateful for this opportunity to bring you education from experts in the field of TBI, as well as inspirational stories and helpful life strategies from TBI caregivers themselves. TBI Warrior Foundation, paving the path to success and independence. Learn more at www.tbiwarriorfoundation.org. Okay, great. And we're back. We thank TBI Warrior Foundation for supporting our episodes this month, we really love this partnership that we have with them. And I, I just wanted to circle back and then I'm gonna ask you about your work with TBI Warrior Foundation as well. The technology piece, that is so such a good point that you make because technology drives me crazy with Tom, my husband. Oh yeah. <laughs> he really struggles with learning, still learning new things. So some things, which I think you, you probably can attest to, is some things are, um, will always be there as an issue when you have a TBI. We don't focus on the things that he can't do. Right. We focus on the things that he can do, and we try to have those successful days. We, we spend, I've spent a lot of time over the years figuring it out. He looks really good to the public because it is invisible. Even with ALS, he looks pretty good to the public. Yeah, yeah. And he, you can't see him trying to navigate 
around his world because we've taken the things out that are roadblocks. We just put them aside. We don't address them because it's the best way. Otherwise, there's always failures. And then, and then we as a married couple, or me as the spouse who doesn't have the impairment, gets frustrated. Yeah. And technology is frustration for me, 100% with Tom. Because he met the learning of like, we just switched phones and I gave him my old phone and I got a new phone. But, you know, the reason why was because it was easier for me to teach him on the phone I had. <laughs> yeah, because you were already familiar with it. Yeah. I was familiar with it. So I tried to remove the obstacles that are frustrating for me as the caregiver. Yeah. So I really, I really love that that's what you focus on are if, if the technology is too much, set it aside. What does this person who has this brain injury, what do they need? You know, what's your assessment of what they need and what can they tell you that they need to have? How do we, how do we, how do we have a good quality of life now? Not based on what happened before this person got a TBI, but what is quality of life for this person now and going forward, which will change over time as well? Yeah. Well, how do we give them the tools? I love the work that you're doing. Yeah. And one thing I think we're really gravitating towards, um, I think in all of rehabilitation professions is finding meaningful goals for people and having goals be um, not a prescriptive sort of thing that therapists develop for patients. So, you know, I gave you a cognitive test. I saw that you had memory and attention problems. And so I'm going to work on those things because that's what your testing said. That's sort of the conventional old model. The new model is, okay, we got, we, we got some testing results back. We, we saw some weaknesses and some strengths, but what do you want to work on? What is meaningful to you? Because if we're not doing this in conjunction with the client, then those goals are not going to have any meaning to them. They're going to be arbitrary. They're going to, they're not going to make much progress on them. And aside from the client, it's also bringing in the caregiver and the family member. What does your family want to work on? And so I think that's a really uh, wonderful evolution that we've made as a profession is is finding goals that are meaningful, um, also providing strategies that a client believes will help be helpful to them. You know, that's something that we have known for the, from the research that if I don't believe that that smartphone that you're telling me to use is going to help me as a client, then I'm going to be far more unlikely to use it and to adopt it in my day-to-day -day routine. So um, yeah, we're definitely, that's the, the gold standard is to move towards meaningful goals that make a big impact on what people really do want to do with their lives and to try to deliver therapy in the most functional ways possible and to increase social participation as much as possible. We know that that um, that social participation is healthy for all of us. People who are injured and people who are not injured need social interaction. And I think in light of this COVID um, sort of era that we're living in, I think we're really going to see some of that, um, that play out a little bit. That um, What is that going to do to our, this isolation? What's it going to do for our uh, just mental state for all of us? And so um, we really want to, you know, to the degree that we can try to increase that participation in people with traumatic brain injury as much as possible. Mm -hmm. I, so true. And I, 
I guess when you have a TBI, I think like with ALS, we like we say when you know one person with ALS, you know one person with ALS. Yes. You exactly. know one person with a TBI, you know one person with a TBI. There's so many variables. You can't compare the two. And so because of that, I imagine it's a very dynamic field to be in because yes. you're always having to think outside the box, your strategies for rehab and um, and how to get the person with the TBI where they want to be, where they hope to be in their life, which isn't going to be the same. So you have to have a big bag of tricks that you're working with and then sort of put them together and maybe come up with new different ones along the way. And with that, let me ask you, what is your involvement with the TBI Warrior Foundation? Yes, that's a great segue. So um, I have been involved with the TBI Warrior Foundation for about a year now. I started out as a rehabilitation uh, consultant and now um, just in the past month or so have been um, been asked to step up as a full um, voting board member. So that was really exciting. Um, I. I've known uh, Roxana uh, Delgado, um, their uh, founder, one of their co-founders, uh, for a couple, a few years because she and I share a research mentor. Um, she has been a guest speaker in some of my courses. She's a wonderful epidemiologist and qualitative researcher, which is a really exciting area of research. Um, so what we've been doing is we've been collaborating um, with myself and the organization and my graduate students. Um, and we have been conducting cognitive skills workshops um, every few months. We've done two events so far, but we will rent out a space in the community. Um, for the most part, it's been in the um, Bernie area, which is a little town uh, north of San Antonio, Texas. And we will have a two to three hour workshop. Uh, we'll include dinner and snacks and, and we'll have lots of social um, interactions. But my students with my mentorship have developed a one hour cognitive skills strategy workshop and they cover all of the latest evidence-based interventions for memory, attention, um, executive function skills. Um, in the past uh, few months, we were actually awarded an interprofessional community uh, service learning grant. So in addition to my graduate students who study speech language pathology, we also have a physical therapy and an occupational therapy graduate student uh, who participate in our workshops. Our physical therapy student focuses on exercise. Exercise has a strong association with improved cognitive function. And so we talk about the impact of being active and have, making sure you have a regular physical exercise routine, you know, depending on what your limitations might be. Maybe it's just a walk around the neighborhood. Maybe it's a swim in the pool because you might have some pain. And so we talk about that with physical therapy. And then occupational therapy focuses on um, the, the caregiver, actually. We talk about the burden often on the caregiver and what the caregiver can do to mitigate some of that burden to uh, be able to um, you know, have a little bit of respite 
from the day-to-day -day care of someone with a chronic condition. And so it's been wonderful. We've had lots of community attendance from individuals who are in the military, who have recently separated from the military, from veterans, and a few um, uh, civilian participants as well. And their caregivers come with them. And we have a wonderful time. We've had some really meaningful uh, conversations um, that have really been touching. And I think we have been feeling a little uh, niche in the community that um, often there's a lot of um, events for the person with the injury, but perhaps not a lot for that caregiver. So I think that we've done a pretty nice job of being able to include that as part of some of our, our training. So I'm really grateful to be uh, involved with the foundation. And it's the, you know, I've told uh, the founders, it's the beginning of a beautiful friendship because um, we're all pretty well established in this community. And so moving forward, there's nothing but, you know, positive and room for growth in, um, in, in, in our, our work in the community for people with traumatic brain injury. Well, that's fantastic. I'm so glad you're doing that. I think for caregivers, um, <clears throat> having resources, not just resources online, but resources in person where they can learn and they can learn from each other, they can learn from professionals, it, it helps them in their daily lives because it puts perspective on what they're doing. That's, it can be very frustrating when you're, when you're every day 24 hours a day, your life is around somebody who is chronically ill, and then you add on top of that the disparities in the cognition, and you take on many more things. The caregiver has to take on more things, maybe more finances, maybe the shopping, maybe driving. I've, I've had to take on all of those uh, roles in our life, and early on when Tom got sick with encephalitis, the, the after effects they're difficult to discern right away. They can take a, a while before you start figuring out, oh, it's not just executive functioning. It's like you said, the hormone regulation. He has um, auditory and olfactory seizures and they kind of emerged later on. So, you know, they, they were, you know, who could you talk to about that? Nobody, we were in our 30s. So it's so great to see that these resources are available today. I think it, it makes it, it's gotta be less frustrating. Yeah, and I think that you hit on a really good note that it's about that interaction between caregivers because they feel so alone, they feel so isolated, so it really gives them a chance to have a couple of hours, you know, they don't have to cook dinner, they just have to show up and mm -hmm. there's a lot of uh, people there who are supporting them who can understand what they're going through and we have a wide range of caregivers caregivers don't look just a certain way or like our one specific demographic we have parents who have had children in their 20s have traumatic brain injury and so it's it's that is that's really difficult i mean it's you're you know talk about something that is chronic and that is going to be um, a long-term condition somebody in their 20s who is relatively healthy but just has some chronic um, cognitive or physical disabilities uh, that's a lot to take on so they really need a lot of support a lot of care and um, i know that the the spirit behind the foundation has been that um, for those who have been lucky enough i think to have care, managed care through like the VA or the Department of Defense where they have a lot of resources. Um, 
that not everybody is in that situation and that some people don't get all the therapies that they want. They don't get all the respite care that they want. And so I know that that's the, the goal and the, the, the um, gap that uh, TBI Warrior Foundation is trying to fill because we understand that there are disparities in our healthcare system and, and in just the, the resources that we have available to us. So I'm happy to be part of that, especially now that I'm doing more research full-time. I don't get that patient interaction and that direct contact with clients anymore and i really miss that because that was my favorite part of my job is just interacting with my clients and um, being able to just have that personal connection so it really fills a gap in in my in my need for that as well not that this is all about me but i just it makes me motivated to do more workshops to fill more needs and and to support more people uh, as much as we can and for my students it's it's been a wonderful experience because for them this is the first time that they're interacting with someone with a chronic condition and so it really um they 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 get a lot of fulfillment out of it well we're so appreciative what wounded worry what the uh so i so i screwed that up the um uh, Roxana's foundation uh, does for people who have TBIs and TBI Warrior Foundation. And just because it has warrior in their title doesn't mean that you must be a veteran Correct. to um, receive some services from them to be part of their workshops. And if you're looking for uh, TBI Warrior Foundation, that's all you need to do to put in your search bar, TBI Warrior Foundation. And you can send in a request for more information or contact from them. And the, I believe that they have their uh, their upcoming workshops, although that's probably on hold with the COVID-19 happening right now. Um, but I'm sure they're happy to answer any questions that anybody has. Um, we really appreciate you coming on today as a guest. This has been so enlightening for us. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. We appreciate it. And so I will have this up in and publish soon and and our listeners can if they have questions for you um, they certainly can send them to us or they can send them to you but if they send them to me I'll get them to you and they can send them to me at this caregiver life at gmail.com where they can find us on our Facebook page this caregiver life we have a Twitter feed caregiver this caregiver on Twitter since we have shorter characters there <laughs> an Instagram feed, this caregiver life. So there's multiple ways to find any of us if anybody has any questions and wants to know more about your research. Okay, thank you. We appreciate it. Stay safe and stay healthy and um, we'll be in touch soon when this is published. Okay, thank you. Yep. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Yep.